0: Well, I originally grew up in Minnesota, in central Minnesota, and my dad did and, and still does make his own maple syrup every spring. Now, to make maple syrup, one needs to collect a lot of sap, a lot of sap, and you take that sap and you boil it down until you get your desired consistency, which then is your maple syrup. And it takes something like 40 gallons of sap to make just one gallon of maple syrup. Now, if you were to take all of the imperatives, all of the commands in, the, in this short epistle of Titus, and if you were to put them in a pot, as it were, and just keep boiling them down... <laughs> What would be your maple syrup command? What would be your one central imperative that you would be left with? Well, my argument that I want to present before you this morning is that it would be, arguably, Titus chapter 3, verse 14. As Paul is telling Titus to remind the churches in Crete that they are to learn. They are to learn to devote themselves to good works. They are to learn to devote themselves to good works. Now this theme of good works has been a theme that Paul has been hitting upon over and over again in this epistle. So for instance, in chapter 1, Paul spends the bulk of that chapter giving qualifications for elders, for pastors, for under-shepherds. Or, to put it another way, Paul was explaining the good works that pastors and elders are called to. In chapter 2, Paul speaks about the good works that every adult demographic within the church are to perform. Then in chapter 3... The beginning of chapter 3, Paul speaks of the good works that we are to perform towards outsiders, towards unbelievers. And so chapter 3, verse 14, in, in, in many ways, is the capstone verse on this theme of good works. Now notice here in chapter 3 verse 14 that the Apostle Paul doesn't doesn't just say that we are to be a people who devote ourselves to good works. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says that we are to be a people who learn to devote ourselves to good works. Now this concept of learning Learning to devote ourselves to good works is such an important concept for us. Paul is envisioning that that our life of good works is not just a one-time thing that we learn, forget, and move on from. Rather, we are called to be lifelong students of good works. This idea of learning to devote ourselves to good works is meant to be an ongoing, continuous habit within the life of a Christian. We are to learn to devote ourselves to good works. This concept of learning reminds us that many of the scenarios that we face in our lives are not clear-cut, black-and-white decisions over sin and righteousness. Now, we do have those, those issues in life, those scenarios in life, but those are the easy scenarios. Much of our weeks, much of our days, much of our, our life, and the attention in our life is devoted to the gray. Devoted to issues that call for wise judgments in absence of a biblical command. How do you relate to your spouse who wakes up on the wrong side of the bed on a Tuesday morning? How do you parent children of different temperaments? How do you relate to a co-worker, a boss, or or, uh, an employee who is vulgar and disrespectful? These things are difficult. These things call us to be wise learners of good works. We are to be a people who learn who learn to devote ourselves to good works. Now, Paul here goes on and gives us the purpose of this learning. He says that we are to learn to devote ourselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need. So as to help cases of urgent need. Now, what are these cases of urgent need? Well, you'll notice in these verses, Paul tells us. He says that Apollos and Z- uh, Zenus, the lawyer, who were gospel workers, were going to be traveling through Crete, and they would have been in need of hospitality and provisions. And thus, the Cretans are to meet these needs. These urgent needs for the sake of the kingdom of God. However, what is implicit here, what is assumed here, is that the Cretans also are to learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help ordinary needs as well. Ordinary needs that pop up on a Wednesday afternoon or a Friday morning within their local community or churches. And so we are to be a people who learn to devote ourselves to good works, not only to help the cases of urgent needs, but also to help the cases of ordinary needs that pop up on a daily and weekly basis. The question that I'd like to present before you then this morning is how? How do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? For those of you who have children, how do you train and instruct and parent your children in such a way that they learn to devote themselves to good works? They learn to ready themselves so that they will be available to help cases of urgent need and help cases of ordinary needs. How? Do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? This is a question I'd like us to consider this morning. How do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? I would like us to answer this question by looking at the book of Titus as a whole. To put it another way, I'd like the book of Titus as a whole to answer this question for us. How do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? There are four things I want to draw your attention to as we seek to answer this question this morning. The first of which is that we are to learn self-control. We are to learn self-control. How do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? We first of all need to learn the virtue of self-control. Now self-control has been a nail that Paul has repeatedly hit throughout this short epistle to Titus. So for instance, if you look with me in your Bibles at Titus 1 verse 8, notice what the apostle says there. He says that an elder, or a potential elder, must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, Upright, holy, and disciplined. Then, if you look with me in Titus 2, Titus 2, Paul says that older men are to be self controlled. Paul says that younger women are to be self controlled, which assumes that older women, which are to be their mentors, are also to be self controlled. And then, look with me in chapter 2 at Paul's address for younger men. Look at how many virtues he commends for younger men. Do you see that great list? It's one. It's the virtue of self control. If you're a young man, Paul is saying, yeah, just focus your attention on one thing self control. So, according to the Apostle Paul, if you were to ask him, what, what is the most important virtue that I'm to focus upon? According to this epistle, he would say self-control. In fact, if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, you know, of all the things in the moral life, what is the one thing that I should devote my attention to? His answer would be self-control. Self-control is such an important characteristic and virtue for us to inculcate within our lives. Now, if this virtue is so important, what is it? What does it mean to be self-control? Control. Well, first of all, self-control refers to the avoidance of extremes. Self-control refers to the avoidance of extremes. And it, in this sense, then self-control stands as the necessary foundation for every other virtue in our Christian lives. Self-control stands as the necessary foundation for every other virtue in our Christian lives. What then is virtue, broadly conceived? Well, virtue, virtue according to Aristotle, is the median between two poles. So think of courage, for instance. What is courage? Well, courage is the avoidance of recklessness on the one hand and fear on the other hand. So, so virtue is the median between two poles. It's staying on the middle of the road and staying out of the two ditches. And thus, you can see that, that self-control is the doorway into every Virtue. Self-control is the doorway into every virtue. Self-control as the avoidance of extremes, the avoidance of the two ditches on either side of the road, is the necessary foundation for every virtue in the Christian life. And so if you desire to be courageous, to be loving, to be patient, to be kind, and the list can go on, if you desire to be those things, you first of all need to be self-controlled. That is why Paul gives so much attention to this virtue of self-control. It is so important. It is the doorway into every positive characteristic and virtue that is commended for us in the Bible. Just think about love. We need self-control to control our natural inclination to obsess about ourselves, our needs, our wants. And our inclination to turn a blind eye to the needs of our neighbor. You know, John Calvin once said, uh, he said, you know, if people were less devoted to themselves, how much love and harmony there would be amongst us all. If people were less devoted to themselves, how much more love and harmony would there be amongst us all, within our churches, within our communities? Beloved, we need self control. To be less devoted to ourselves. So that there can be more love and harmony amongst us all. And so self-control is so important. So important. Indeed, it's that first foundational lesson that we are to learn if we are to be a people who learn to devote ourselves to good works. We are called to a life of self-control. And so we would do well this morning to consider Consider in our own lives the ways in which we are prone to extremes. The ways in which we find ourselves in a ditch. Off the middle of the road and in a ditch. Where do you need to be self-controlled? Well, the second lesson that we need to learn if we are to be a people who learn to devote ourselves to good works is we need to learn to appreciate the wisdom that spans generations. We need to learn to appreciate the wisdom that spans generations. We need to learn to appreciate the wisdom that spans generations. Now, I already alluded to Titus chapter 2. But Titus chapter 2, which for many of us is probably a well-known passage. In Titus chapter 2, Paul envisions that within the covenant community, uh, the covenant community would be a community in which younger generations are under the tutelage of older generations. This is exactly what he says. He, he talks about how older women are to train the younger women. He, he talks about or his implicit point when he addresses the men is that older men are, are to serve as examples for the younger men. Examples of self-control, of godliness, of wisdom. And so if you were to ask Titus chapter 2... How does one become a virtuous individual? How does one learn to devote themselves to good works? Well, Paul in Titus chapter 2 would respond by saying, be a part of a local church. Find an older, more godly individual in that local church and learn from them. Imitate them. Develop a relationship with them. Again, even pagan Aristotle said... You know, how does one become a virtuous person? Well, you need to find a virtuous person and imitate that person. That's how one becomes a virtuous person, and really that's what Paul' is saying here in Titus chapter two. Paul, then is calling us to be very countercultural. Our temptation, as moderns who live in the 21st century, is to be more influenced by people out there, podcasters. Bloggers, people online, celebrity pastors and theologians. And we as members of the OPC or the URC, we have our own version of celebrity pastors and theologians. So we're more tempted to be, be influenced by people out there than our own pastors, our own elders, our own brothers and sisters in our local congregations. And So Paul is saying that we are to be a people who submit to the church as a vehicle of transformation. We thought a little bit about this in in Sunday school this morning, but we are not to view the church merely as a platform for our individual self-expression. The church is not a gathering of sovereign individuals. It's not a place uh, for performative action to be undergone. The church is a vehicle for transformation, and thus we all are called to submit to the body of Christ as a means of discipleship and transformation in our Christian lives. This doesn't mean you just, you know, of course, you should submit to your elders, but this also means that you submit to the body. When you take membership vows, you are promising to one another in the pews that you're a part of this body. That you will seek to do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. And that's the promise that your fellow brothers and sisters in your local congregation have made for you as well. We're a household. We're a part of this church together. You are a part of this church together. And so learning good works is not a self-study course that you take online. This is an in-person cohort model. We do this together together within a covenant community that's intergenerational. And so how do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? Well, again, the Apostle Paul would say, be a part of a local church and begin to appreciate the wisdom that spans generations. Don't just hang out with people in your own season of life. That's our temptation. If you're single, hang out with other singles. If you're married with no kids, hang out with other people who are married with no kids. If you have young kids, hang out with people with young kids. If you're empty nesters, hang out with other people who are empty nesters. But Paul urges us to hang out, to spend time, develop relationships with people who are in different seasons of life than we are in. Who are older, who are younger, who are more mature, less mature. This is God's vision for the covenant community. And so we are to learn to appreciate the wisdom that spans generations. Well, third, how do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? Well, we are to learn to appreciate the ordinary. We are to learn to appreciate the ordinary. Now, just based on a mere cursory reading of the book of Titus, one conclusion you should come away with is that the good works that Paul commends in this epistle are quite ordinary. Think of Titus chapter 1. Paul doesn't say that pastors and elders need to be dynamic, charismatic entertainers. No, he says that pastors and elders are to be faithful men of virtue who hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction, sound doctrine, and rebuke those who contradict it. Ordinary. Difficult, but ordinary. Think of Titus chapter 2. The virtues that he commends are, are very, very ordinary. Difficult, but ordinary. In fact, as he addresses younger women, the reason why he focuses upon these domestic responsibilities of, of loving husband and children working quietly at home is because there were false teachers going around these churches in Crete who were essentially telling these young, younger women that domestic responsibilities were, were, uh, were not that great of callings in life. <laughs> And that you actually should pursue more radical callings, aesthetic callings. You should shirk these domestic responsibilities and go and move upper and move up and, and uh, to more significant things in life. They're promoting asceticism as a more holy way of life than being a wife and a mother. And that is why he focuses upon those domestic responsibilities. He's reminding these younger women that no, being a a wife and a mother are legitimate and good, great callings in life that should be embraced. Yes, they're ordinary. But they're high and mighty callings in life that should be embraced. Uh, think of verses 9 and 10 in chapter 2. Paul addresses bond servants. And in the literal context, he's referring to slaves. Slaves in the Greco-Roman world. Talk about not being revolutionary. Paul doesn't tell Titus to tell the slaves to start a revolution. To revolt from their masters. He doesn't tell Titus to draft a resolution to Caesar Augustus to end the institution of slavery. No, no, no. What does Paul do? While at the same time being able to condemn slavery as a vile institution, he calls upon these slaves to be faithful, to pursue excellence in their current station and season of life, even if it is being a slave. Why? So that by their faithful conduct, they may have a platform to sow gospel seed in the hearts of their unbelieving masters. Talk about ordinary. Now, if we reflect upon the callings that God has given us, wager a bet that all of us, all of us can, can uh, at least um, agree with the fact that our callings feel ordinary, feel mundane. What we do on a Monday afternoon, a Thursday morning, it can feel monotonous, ordinary, mundane, staying at home with, with little kids, ordinary, mundane, doing what you do at work over and over and over again ordinary, mundane, but yet one of the great insights of the Protestant Reformation is that you don't have to be a pastor, priest, monk, or nun to have a vocation, a legitimate calling from God. As long as your vocation is a non-sinful vocation, it is a vocation, a calling from God that you are to embrace as God's means to serve your neighbor. You know, Luther wonderfully talked about how your vocation is how God masks his fatherly providence towards the people in your life. You view your vocations in that way. As God masking his fatherly providence through you towards your neighbors. As God masking his benevolent common grace through you towards your neighbors. Do you view your vocations in that way? Do you seek to pursue excellence within your vocation so that you might have a platform to give a defense of the hope that lies within you to your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends, and your family? Do you embrace the ordinary? The way in which we learn to devote ourselves to good works is by embracing, embracing the seemingly mundane and ordinary callings in life and pursuing excellence, excellence in those areas of life. Well, last of all, how do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? Well, the most important, the most important thing that we need to learn is we need to learn to rest in God's grace. We need to learn to rest in God's grace. Notice how Paul ends this epistle in verse 15. He ends with a benediction, the way every worship service ends. Paul says, Grace be with you all. Now, Note also how Paul begins this epistle. He begins in chapter 1, verse 4, with a salutation. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul bookends this epistle with benedictions of God's grace upon the churches in Crete. This is meant to teach us that we should always think of good works in connection to God's grace. We should always think of good works in connection with God's grace. God's grace is the foundation for pursuing a life of good works. God's grace is the foundation for pursuing a life of good works. Now, what is grace? (laughs) if grace is the foundation we we better be pretty sure what grace is well, again paul does not leave us in the dark when it comes to the book of titus if you look at titus verse 11 titus chapter 2 verse 11 paul defines grace very clearly for us he says when the grace of god appeared now when did the grace of god appear in the incarnation of our lord jesus christ That's when God's grace condescended to us, sinful humanity. Therefore, we should always think of God's grace as being personal. Capital P, personal. God's grace is defined in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not an idea, it's not a medicinal substance, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ. And therefore, we experience God's grace through this same person. We experience God's grace through our union with Christ, with Christ. We belong body and soul, life and in death. To whom? To our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Consequently then, when we are connected, when we are united to the font of all grace, we then are the recipient of the gifts Of grace or the gifts of Christ. So you'll notice that in Titus 3, verse 7, Paul says that we have been justified, declared righteous, and forgiven by what? By his grace. Justification is a gift of Christ. It's a gift of grace. Furthermore, in Titus chapter 3, Paul speaks about our regeneration and our adoption. And these things, these gifts, come through Jesus Christ our Lord. And thus regeneration and adoption are gifts. Gifts that come to us by the person Of Jesus Christ. They're gifts of grace. Christ ascended into heaven. And what happened when Christ ascended into heaven? Gifts came down. Gifts in the form of the Holy Spirit. And gifts in the form of our salvation. Our justification. Our regeneration. Our adoption. Our sanctification. And so on. And so God's grace is defined. By the person of Jesus Christ. And the gifts that Christ bestows upon us. As his redeemed people. So this grace, Jesus Christ, is the foundation for uh, pursuing a life of good works. Now why? Why is it so important that we connect these two ideas, grace and good works? Why is it so important that we pursue a life of good works upon the foundation of Christ our Lord? Well, apart from this foundation, it is impossible, impossible to uh, to live a life of good works. Apart from this foundation, it is impossible to live a life of good works. Uh, think of it this way. Imagine there's a man who judges art for a living. And when this man goes to a uh, competition, art, uh, art competition, this man will judge art according to the strict principles of art. But let's say you go into this man's office, and right on his wall uh, next to his desk is a picture of, that his four-year-old daughter drew for him. Now, if that man were to judge that picture of his daughter as a judge, according to the strict principles of art, it's worthy of the garbage can. It's a terrible piece of art. But, if he views that picture as a father, he delights in it. It's his favorite piece of artwork. And so, if God views your good works, your seemingly good works, as a judge... Your good works are worthy of the garbage can. But, if God views your good works as a father, then he delights in them through his grace as a father delights in the drawings of his small children. That is why grace needs to be the foundation for this life of good works. Well, what does it mean then to rest in God's grace to pursue a life of good works from this foundation? Well, In Titus 2.11, Paul again is very clear that this grace, this grace which appeared in history, serves as our motivation. It trains us. It trains us to put off the old man and put on the new man. It trains us to be zealous for good works. Grace is the motivation. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, our natural inclination is to be introspective. Our natural inclination is for the eyes of our hearts to be turned in upon ourselves. And when we become introspective, we go between uh, the pendulum of pride and despair. When we feel like we're doing better than those in our lives, we're puffed up with pride. When we feel like we don't measure up compared to the lifestyles of other people, we are filled with despair. When the eyes of our heart are turned inward, we are insecure. And insecurity is one of the most poisonous things that can affect our hearts. In fact, you know, C.S. Lewis defined pride as being inherently competitive. It ruins relationships. It makes us unloving and, and, and not joyful or content. And so what allows us to stop being introspective and actually be extrospective, to look outside of ourselves? Well, the grace of God. The grace of God is the only instrument through which we can become an extrospective people. The grace of God is the only means by which we can actually forget about ourselves and focus upon the glory of God, the good of our neighbor, and the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what it means to rest in Christ. It means to forget about yourself and to look outside of you, to forget about how you measure up compared to the lives of other people and to focus on the glory of God, the good of your neighbor, and the righteousness of Christ. Well, beloved, how? How do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? Well, the book of Titus answers this question uh, very wisely for us. Paul says that we are to learn self-control. Paul says that we are to learn to appreciate the wisdom that spans generations. Paul says that we are to learn to appreciate the ordinary. And most important of all, we are to learn to rest in God's grace. The person of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom that we can glean from it. We thank you, O Lord, for Jesus Christ, the font of all grace. And as we soon turn to commune with the same risen Christ at the table of the Lord, we pray that you would nourish our souls unto everlasting life. We ask all these things in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.